Hi guys, welcome to episode 18 of the Irish Balance Podcast. I can't believe we're on 18. I know I say that every single week, but it really does blow my mind how many people are listening to the podcast. We've hit over 3,000 downloads and I only started this podcast in January. So I really am so grateful for everyone who's been listening, for everyone who lets me know that they're enjoying it, what they think of the episodes. It's amazing to hear your feedback. This week's topic, we're going to chat about social media and the benefits and harms of it and why we cannot let Dr. Google replace seeking out in-person healthcare advice. It's a topic that I feel quite passionate about. I wrote about it recently on the blog and I spoke about it as well on um, iRadio um, just last week, which is a weekly radio slot that I do on a national radio station. So just as a quick aside, for those of you who've been asking about interviews and when we're getting a part two for Dr. Mary, that was actually planned for last week, but we had to reschedule. So I'm hoping to get Seppi back on over the next couple of weeks and I do have three or four interviews lined up. So I'm hoping episode 19 will be an interview. So bear with me. And I'm so glad that you guys have really enjoyed these episodes I've done so far and the topics that I've covered. As I say, I'm really grateful for it going to do a quick backtrack and just say hello to anyone who's new to the podcast or anyone who is listening to their first episode. Welcome. You've got loads you can go back and listen to now. So I'll introduce myself. Um, My name's Kira. I'm an Irish girl and a qualified medical doctor. I'm currently doing a one-year full-time master's in public health and nutrition at UCD in Ireland, just in case you're listening from outside of the Emerald Isle. And I am very passionate about preventative medicine, which is why I'm pursuing public health as a doctor. And I'm particularly interested in um, how our lifestyles affect our health through the food we eat, the exercise we do, our stress management, our sleep and our social well-being. And I use my blog and my podcast and my social media to sort of show you guys how we can, in a simple way, empower ourselves to live sort of happy and healthy lifestyles that are full of balance and not restriction, not deprivation. I really hope that you guys are loving the content as much as I'm loving creating it. I also want to say thank you so much to everyone who has been so lovely, as you all have, um, about my new job, which I'm starting in July on the Public Health Training Scheme in Ireland. And I'm also moving to Galway in July as well, which is in the west of Ireland. So I'm really excited to jump across the country. It's going to be a busy few months throughout the rest of 2019. And I cannot believe it's April already, but it is really exciting. And it's a chapter that I'm really looking forward to getting started on. And I guess I'll become a little bit of a Galway girl, as cringe as that is, but I can't wait to move and I guess make the city my own. So I'm really looking forward to that and I'm excited to share the journey with you guys too. And of course, everything that I learn along the way as I start my new job, which is going to be a lot. So the reason that I wanted to touch on this topic is because this issue Um, had been bothering me for quite a while and I wanted to put my thoughts together in a blog post first before talking about it on the podcast and the issue really to me is that there's this huge rise that I've seen in people using Dr. Google and increasingly social media as a substitute for clinical contact with actual healthcare professionals whether that's a doctor or a dietitian or a physiotherapist um, or a psychologist or other healthcare professionals too. And it bothers me a lot for a number of reasons, but as I did in the blog post, I'm going to try and keep it to three. And they're each, I suppose, headings that I wanted to address in turn, because I guess we know technology isn't going to go away, right? I mean, it only gets increasingly advanced and intrusive in our lives every day. And so it's really more about strategies that we need to put in place 
and rational choices that we need to make about how we use it and how much we let it dictate our lives. Now, a lot of you might have heard about things like telemedicine or telehealthcare, and that is sort of an area of medicine that's on the rise. We do have what's called an e-health strategy in Ireland, and it is sort of a little bit um, to do with that health intelligence domain of public health that I talked about. I mean, we need to, I suppose, have metrics that we can use to monitor how healthcare systems are performing, and that does involve using technology. And as technology becomes more advanced, that does mean that it can do more and more for us from a healthcare perspective. So I'm not dissing that. I'm not dissing telemedicine. I'm not dissing e-health. I think that's a really big part of the way forward for our healthcare system. Things like online appointments for patients, online prescribing, integrating hospital and community data, they're all really, really important things if managed appropriately, sensitively, and in keeping with the relevant data protection regulations. And I doubt there's anyone really uh, listening to this who hasn't heard of GDPR at this stage. I actually spent five weeks as a final year medical student at Johns Hopkins University Hospital in Baltimore, and that was entirely run on an online system. So I am really familiar with the efficiency and effectiveness of eHealth. So as I say, that's not what this um, podcast is about. This is about encouraging people to actually talk to healthcare professionals in person and not use Dr. Google or people they follow online as sources of advice to diagnose themselves or prescribe. And trust me, prior to my medical training, I've done the thing where you Google your symptoms. And I think we can all agree that it never, ever turns out well. It pretty much always gives us the worst case scenario, whether you're Googling it for a blocked nose or something much more serious. Dr. Google can't take a full medical history from you and he or she definitely can't physically examine you. And those skills are both key parts of a doctor's training and they take years to hone and improve. And as well, Googling answers to medical questions can lead people to read anecdotes as opposed to evidence for various health issues. And as we know, what works for one person or is the case for one person may not be for the next or be helpful to you at all, particularly when you're seeking healthcare advice and probably in a bit more of a vulnerable position. So, Um, Like I say, as I did in the blog post, I'm going to chat through sort of three major areas where I think this can be harmful if we use too much social media over actually seeking medical advice. So number one is really about why sliding into DMs, and by DMs I mean direct messages, on social media, even if you're getting in touch with a person who is a qualified healthcare professional, it doesn't replace clinical contact. This is the one I've been personally most affected by, and it isn't to call out or give out about anybody who has, um, you know, messaged me on Instagram previously asking for medical advice, because usually, as I say, it is people just looking for help in a vulnerable position. And I do understand how easy it can seem to just ask the person whose content you trust and follow. It's almost like a digital extension of having a friend who you know, who is, for example, a dermatologist and asking their advice about a skin spot you might have or asking a physiotherapist a little bit of advice about a niggle that you picked up at the gym. And I know very well from being the doctor in the family that it's easy for people to sort of do a drive-by query about various symptoms. I've had DMs on social media, sorry, messages on social media, Instagram mostly asking me for dietary advice, exercise advice injury management advice, weight loss advice, menstrual cycle advice, fertility advice, um, digestive issues, um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and many, many more. And really, each person who seeks a personalized answer, my answer is always, always the same. I don't ignore these messages. And like I say, I'm grateful for everyone who follows my content and who 
would trust me to ask, but for my own personal moral values and also legal and ethical reasons as a doctor, it's really just not an acceptable thing to do. And as well, as you can tell from the examples I've given, a lot of these issues that I get asked about need specialized medical advice or advice from another healthcare professional. So for example, someone would be much better off maybe talking to a nutritionist or a dietitian in person than asking an online influencer. It's not a case of quick tips to fix an issue. As doctors, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the two most important skills we learn during our medical training, or two of the most important, are history taking and clinical examination. So meeting a patient, whether that's in the hospital or community setting and taking a careful history of why they've come to see us, their symptoms and all of their past medical and surgical and family history and medications and things is like our bread and butter. And what follows then is a clinical examination, depending on what the patient has told us and what our train of thought is in terms of a differential diagnosis, which is where we look for clinical signs that might help us. And we usually get a bit of an idea from our history and exam. We use our brains. We might talk to colleagues and do some investigations to work out what's going on and causing the patient to present to us. And then that's how we form our plan of management or treatment and discuss that with the patient who's come. But how much of that can be done online and how much of that can be done via social media? Pretty minimal, in my opinion. And I know a doctor can take history online. I know there are doctors that operate online and I won't dispute that. But from a social media perspective, I don't think it comes even close to being the same or as valuable to, sorry, as speaking to and connecting with a patient. And like I said, unless technology has gotten really crazy uh, since I last checked, definitely can't physically examine people via social media. I'm pretty sure Alexa's still a voice and hasn't morphed into a person. <laughs> Plus, and this is something that I find hard to put into words in my blog post, but there's this whole other intangible and really, really amazing element to the doctor-patient relationship that's very hard to teach in medical school and is something that really comes with experience. And it's sort of that unique interaction that you have with each individual patient. And it's what always makes me so grateful to be a doctor um, it's how we communicate with them. It's how we use body language and compassion and empathy. It's a blend of all these things. Um, I'd love to be able to put a name on it because it is one of the best things about being a physician, but it's just being in that position to be able to help and to talk to people in person and meet them where they're at and try and make things better. And there is a lot of digital interaction that's just very impersonal. I just think that adds more weight to the point I'm making. Something I was asked on my iRadio interview this week was, um, you know, is it legal and ethical for doctors to give advice online? I think I've kind of given my stance on that, but I suppose what I want to say here is one of our core mantras as doctors, and I'm sure many people have heard it on Grey's Anatomy or Eeyore, but it's first do no harm. And I do think that really does fit perfectly here. Um, from an Irish perspective, our Medical Council Ethical Guide um, has a section on social media for doctors, for those of us who use it to communicate, whether that's with the public or with family and friends. Um, and the advice is pretty general, but it is also um, pretty robust. You know, we are advised to maintain professional standards as we would with any other form of communication. And remember, that there's no guarantee of privacy online, which is something that we all need to remember. Um, and it's really important as healthcare professionals that we consider how anything we post might be viewed by the public, by patients, and the impact on our own family and friends, but also on our colleagues and the public's perception of the medical profession too. So I think they're really good principles to follow and back up what I'm saying. So the second point I want to make on this topic is that media myths have and continue to cause real world harm to human health. 
That's online harm causing offline harm. Now, as a lot of you know, these media myths really make my blood boil. So I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox because I'll find it really hard to get off. But I am going to give you guys some examples because I think they're really important health topics, public health topics, and do make a good point and a case for why we do need to be wary of the media that we consume and question where claims have come from if we see influencers making them. And I do also know that I count as an influencer, by the way. I think anyone with more than zero followers is technically an influencer, but I do totally put myself in the bracket of an influencer, however small. So I am always very aware of that. And I do hope that how responsible I feel for my content comes across in what I share. So first, let's chat vaccinations. So my master's has taught me many, many important things, but I have become so, so aware of the media myths, controversy and confusion around vaccination. There was a huge amount of controversy around the MMR vaccine and ill-founded autism claims which were widely discredited in the 1990s by a specific doctor. I'm not going to get into that now and explain it, but in my article on my blog, I did link a really good summary article of it. But essentially, it led to a lot of confusion among the public about the safety of the vaccine, which, which it totally is safe, by the way, and led to major reductions in uptake of the MMR vaccine. And MMR, if in case you don't know, stands for measles, mumps and rubella, all of which are vaccine preventable diseases. And that affected uptake rates for years afterwards. And although there's been a huge amount of work done by public health internationally and in Ireland as well to dispel these myths and assure people of the vaccine safety and efficacy since that time, we do still see, as I'm sure many of you have, a lot of anti-vaccination movements and on social media too, which confuses the public about whether or not to vaccinate children. And what's even more scary is that we are now seeing in Ireland and other European countries the direct effect of suboptimal vaccine, up, vaccine uptake rates on children and adolescents. We've seen over the last year or more ongoing measles outbreaks in Europe and in Ireland. And we've also seen several months outbreaks in Ireland over the past few months. The World Health Organization recommends we get vaccine uptake rates for vaccine preventable diseases to 95 and above to prevent these diseases becoming established. And that's what we have to work towards and work as hard as we do to dispel these myths. I'm going to give a second example because it's something that I also chatted about recently on um, iRadio and in my women's health um, blog article, which was about the HPV vaccine. And HPV, in case you don't know, stands for human papilloma virus, which is the virus identified as the cause of cervical cancer. So most women will have a HPV infection at some point in their lives, and that's usually through sexual contact, but most of us will clear this infection. In some women, it can persist, and that might be more likely in the presence of other cervical cancer risk factors, such as smoking. And if it persists, it can cause abnormal cell changes in the cervix, which can over time lead to cervical cancer. So by vaccinating young girls in the first year of school, which is what we do in Ireland, because we want to give the vaccine before girls become sexually active, we're vaccinating against the subtypes of HPV, the virus that can cause these cancerous cell changes. And so we're giving them the best shot at cervical cancer prevention. The Irish Health Service Executive website has really, really good resources online with lots of frequently asked questions about the vaccine and details on our skills vaccination program and the established vaccine safety and efficacy too, if you do want to read a little bit more than I'm telling you. In Ireland, we administer a vaccine called Gardasil and it protects against four subtypes of HPV. So two that cause 70% of cervical cancers, uh, type 16 and 18, and two that cause 90% of genital warts and they're type 6 and 11. So we give the vaccine to girls in first year of secondary school. They get two doses in total if they're under 15 and three if they're over 15. 
And giving a vaccine in this way is what's called primary prevention in public health lingo. Each year in Ireland, we know that approximately 300 women get cervical cancer. And we know approximately 90 die from this disease. So given we have such a powerful prevention strategy to reduce these numbers, why wouldn't we use it? This vaccine is recommended by our health service, our National Immunisation Advisory Committee, the WHO, the International Federation of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, and many more global health organisations. It is safe. It's had safety monitored consistently since it was introduced long over a decade ago by the European Medicines Agency, the WHO, um, Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety, and the US Centre for Disease Control and Prevention. Like I say, if you have more specific questions than the ones that um, I'm sort of answering. And I don't want to go on too much of a soapbox on this. I just want to give it as an example of media myths, really. But there is a lot more information on the Health Service website. The reason I'm mentioning it and the MMR vaccine is because, as I've said, we've seen a lot of anti-vaccination movements on social media and spreading unfounded claims about unusual vaccine side effects, which, as was the case with the MMR vaccine, has also really affected HPV vaccine uptake rates. And this drop was as drastic um, as going from 86.9% uptake in 2014 to 2015 to a record low of 50% in 2016 to 2017. And that was largely due to anti-vaccination lobby groups, which had large social media platforms and spread a lot of worry and concern with misinformation. Now, we have had a major response by public health officials in Ireland to this uptake crisis to dispel myths and address concerns parents might have to improve vaccine uptake rates. Um, so we're back up at about 61.7%. That was the estimate from 2017 and 2018. So I guess my bottom line on this is we have vaccinations that save lives and we shouldn't be letting myths around them prevent their maximum potential to do so being fulfilled. If you do have any concerns about vaccines, either for yourself or your child, please, please speak to your general practitioner, your family care physician, or the healthcare provider that you link with to address your concerns and allow them to answer your questions in person and from an evidence-based viewpoint. Not from Dr. Google, not from X group on Twitter. They're not valid reasons or arguments and they're not valid sources of information to quote or spread. Now, I will hold myself there and go on to my third point, which is, it sounds very foreboding when I say it actually, but it's unchartered digital waters are a breeding ground for unregulated health advice. I know that's pretty self-explanatory, but it's really, really important. And I'm going to use nutritional myth examples to sort of illustrate it. So I know this is a podcast, but hands up if you watch Netflix. Yep, my hand is up too. And I know many of us do. I think it probably is very hard to find people who don't. I will say that I actually watch very little television, um, very, very little, <laughs> which is probably my own fault for starting a blog and a podcast. But I am well aware of the explosion of Netflix documentaries about food over the last two years. We all know the names. And if you don't, don't go watch them. It's not worth it. Um, Cowspiracy, I did enjoy that in the sense that it opened my eyes a little bit to the environmental impact of animal food consumption again very much a us-based documentary um i did not enjoy what the health i have a very low opinion on what the health the claims it made were essentially entirely discredited and it really was the most scaremongery thing i've ever seen now not all the food documentaries on netflix are terrible or scaremongering if anyone hasn't watched michael pollan's cooked that series is actually brilliant 
But what the health was particularly notable for the degree to which it misinformed viewers and made outrageous claims about certain food groups. And now that I'm over six months into my master's and equipped with pretty decent skills to critically appraise research, it's even more clear to me how shameful their claims were. Ridiculous things such as equating egg and red meat consumption to carry the same health risks as smoking. I actually, with hindsight, cannot believe that people making this documentary thought that cherry picking these studies and making these claims to a global audience was acceptable. But I'm digressing and you can't always apply your own ethical values to others. Now, I know that what to eat and increasingly when to eat, as I know I've chatted about a little bit with my shift work um, topic, can seem like one of the most confusing questions to answer. And I will say here that I am really excited to be getting Maeve Hannon. Um, she's at Dietetically Speaking on Instagram. She is a UK registered dietitian and a good friend of mine. She's absolutely brilliant content. And I am getting her on the podcast to do a two-part episode, um, busting all manner of media myths and just chatting through a few sort of sensible approaches to food very soon. So I'm really excited for that. So that's going to be where we go into things uh, a little bit more uh, deeply. But sorry, I digress. What to eat and when to eat can seem like one of the most confusing questions to answer, I know. Particularly if you spend a lot of time online, scrolling social media, and it feels like everyone is eating a perfectly constructed plate of food and sending different messages. And we know that there's a lot of quotation marks influencers out there who don't have qualifications to give dietary advice and yet frequently share posts of dietary anecdotes as if it were gospel. And sometimes that might be because it's in their own personal financial interest to do so. Another example is the absolute explosion in the free from food industry, both in size and monetary value. And that's probably since the gluten-free trend took off a few years ago. It's not slowing down. And while it is really helpful for people who have genuine allergies and intolerances um, to have a lot more diversity in terms of the types of food that can be accessed, that's brilliant. But it has added a lot of confusion as well in terms of what we, quote, can or cannot eat. And all that's really encouraged is confusion, as I say, and a lot of food rules that shouldn't exist. And added to this recently is all of the debate around sustainable eating and planetary health and the food groups that carry the greatest carbon footprint. It's a bit of a headache, isn't it? And if you do sort of want to read a little bit more about the sustainability side of things, I have written some um, blog articles on that. So I'd really encourage you to check that out because I went into that quite deeply after covering it in college um, for a literature review. And we do know that meat and dairy foods carry the greatest carbon footprint in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. It's pretty well described by the evidence and it's to do with the powerful greenhouse gases that ruminant animals produce through their digestion. But contrary to what social media might tell us, it doesn't really give justification to anyone to give out unregulated advice about telling the planet to go vegan or confusing environmental motives around how to eat with myths around what to eat. So just using meat and dairy as an example, my perspective is that if someone wants to reduce their intake of those foods to eat in a more environmentally sustainable way and does so taking into account the nutritional benefits those foods give them, for example, iron and protein from meat and in dairy, protein, calcium, iodine, among other things, takes those nutritional insights into account and ensures that plant-based alternatives they consume will replace the nutrients that they will lose that's less of an issue. Um, but that's very hard to do without a really, really solid amount of nutritional knowledge and planning, which isn't always the case when people make overnight changes after seeing it online. 
And if someone goes, for example, dairy-free, because they believe that it might cause cancer based on a very, very widely discredited Netflix documentary, brackets, what the hell, that's not okay. And it's it's not okay to scare people about that either. And the same goes for meat too. Food should not fill us with fear. As many of you might have seen, I actually went to a Nutrition for Women's Health talk delivered by my thesis supervisor, um, who is an associate professor in dietetics and is incredible. And the talk was fantastic. It covered a lot of common food questions around dairy, carbohydrates, soy foods, healthy versus unhealthy fats. And the lecture theater was absolutely packed, take, packed out full of people taking all of these evidence-based messages on board. And I will go into a lot of the myths around those foods, as I say, with Maeve on the podcast soon enough. But the reason I mentioned that talk is because it went into the worrying trend that we're seeing of a lot of young women cutting out dairy completely for perceived health benefits based on myths online, as opposed to, for example, personal ethical reasons around eating animal-based foods. And without ensuring knowledge of where to source nutrients lost. So for example, 98% of the Irish population consume dairy. And so it provides a large proportion of, as I've said, our daily calcium and iodine intake. So just removing that food group overnight can have really detrimental effects on our bone health because we need calcium for that. And for example, our thyroid health, which we need iodine for. And that's even more likely if that food group is removed without consulting a nutritional professional. And it really scares me to think that we might see the implications of that in years to come because of media myths. So bottom line, cutting out food groups overnight because a Netflix documentary or a social media influencer or a newspaper headline, quotation mark, told you to or scared you is not okay. First of all, seek professional advice if you have concerns in that context, ideally in person from a healthcare professional, like a dietitian or nutritionist or your doctor to question what you've read and see if these claims are founded and question the influencer who's putting that content out there, ask them for their qualifications, ask them to give you the study that they're referencing. They may not be even referencing a study, ask them to reference a study. We of course need people who share content online to be responsible, but because we know that there's a lot of content put out online that's unregulated, we also have to be responsible consumers and question what we read. If seeing, for example, a nutritional professional isn't feasible in person, some of the really good websites that I check out quite a lot um, are the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute website and the British Dietetic Association website. Really, really fantastic online evidence-based content. And just from a dietary perspective, because I know there's so many myths about it, my favorite people to follow on Instagram are both a mix of dietitians and nutritionists. And these guys objectively discuss nutritional topics in a really easy to understand, balanced way. Um, and those handles are at Dietetically Speaking, um, at Orla Walsh Nutrition, at The Gut Health Doctor, and um, at Retrition, at Laura Thomas PhD, and at The Nutritional Advocate. And I wanted to finish with those because I think it's really important to remember that those are examples of how we can use social media from a health perspective in a positive way. It can empower us, that sort of information can really help us to improve our knowledge around food, question myths and prevent or at least reduce scaremongering influencing our beliefs. So I am going to leave it there guys. I hope that that was helpful. I hope that it made sense. It's something that I feel really, really passionate about. And as I say, I hope that that came across in the 
podcast and I hope that it resonated with you guys. And I would absolutely love to, of course, hear from you on this episode. Do get in touch and leave me a comment on the platforms that you're listening to this on. So obviously Spotify and iTunes and Podbean. And if you are listening on iTunes, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a review for me so I can get my message out there. Um, if you want to get in touch outside of the podcast um, or just drop me a DM, leave a comment on Instagram, tweet me, pop me an email. Um, I'm very easy to get a hold of. Instagram is where I'm most active though, as many of you know. So thank you for listening and be excited for next week because this is not a drill. It should be hopefully getting into the interview season of my podcast. So thank you again for listening so far. Really hope you enjoyed it. Have a great week and I will talk to you guys next time. Bye.